Welcome to the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, the show that brings you lively conversations with leaders, colleagues, and friends in healthcare, pharmacy, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast. I'm Melissa Muir Corrigan, and I'll be your host. This is episode 28 of the Melissa Rx Scripps podcast, and thanks for listening. We're recording this episode for season three during winter 2021. Vaccines are here and distribution is underway. I want to share some love and gratitude for the frontline healthcare workers, which includes pharmacists, student pharmacists, and pharmacy technicians working so hard every day. Thank you. It's also American Heart Month. I'm rocking red today a time to focus on our hearts and raise awareness. This episode is a memory of Dr. Joseph A. Otis, ASHP CEO Emeritus, who passed away after our podcast interview recording. So now let's talk about a leader. Janet M. Carmichael, known as Jan, is president of Farm Consult NV, a clinical pharmacy consulting company, and recently retired from the Veterans Administration. Jan and I are gonna be discussing many things today, including her research insights on gender and leadership. I'll give you a bit of an introduction to Jan and then let her tell you about herself, her career, and her many varied experiences in life in general. Jan's career has included a focus on innovation and cutting edge pharmacy practice. She's a past president of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, ASHP, and a former member of the Nevada Board of Pharmacy. That's really cool that she's done both. She's also the recipient of the 2013 ASHP Harvey A.K. Whitney Lecture Award, Health System Pharmacy's highest honor. She's been named Federal Pharmacist of the Year by the American Pharmacists Association in 2012 and received the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy Osterhaus Medal for Lifetime Achievement in 2017. You may remember that we talked about Bob Osterhaus in an earlier episode with Connie Connolly. So that is a major, major accomplishment. So as we get started, Jan, thanks for being here with me today. I wanna talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, about your family and your University of Iowa pharmacy experience. Thanks, Melissa, for having me. This is gonna be fun. Um, As you might know, but others don't, I grew up in Iowa in a small town in Northwest Iowa called Hartley. Um, And I'm a product of many in middle America who grew up in the middle part of that century, the 1980s and 1970s. And during that period of time, I was probably raised by the community as much as I was by anybody else. It was a strong Protestant, German and Dutch community, farming community, which settled there because of the rich farmland. I was the youngest of three daughters and basically had a very strong school system like many in Iowa at the time. Had, as you talk to many pharmacists, a strong um, math and science background. I was told basically I could do anything in life, but my role models really were my two older sisters who had gone to college and become teachers. And so my role models were really very traditional female role models like nurses and teachers and secretaries and hairdressers and an occasional flight attendant. And so while I was told I could do anything, none of those role models really appealed to me all that much. One day I read an article in the Des Moines Register about pharmacists and how there was a great need for pharmacists. And basically my lot was cast at that point. When I was a freshman in high school, I decided I was going to be a pharmacist. 
And I went off to one of the good schools of pharmacy in the state where my sisters had gone, the University of Iowa. And that is the story of how I became a pharmacist. Wow, I love that. It's so interesting to hear what could spark, you know, you're getting to pharmacy school and also that what you saw around you was interesting, but not your path, you know, that you wanted a different path. I'm smiling thinking about what we're dealing with today. And I'll share with you that when we woke up this morning, it was negative 10 degrees, and that's not with the wind chill. And right now it's a warm, warm, warm four degrees. So for you who spent a lot of time in Iowa, but now lives in a much warmer climate, I think right now you're very happy that you're cozy in Nevada. That was clearly part of my career choice was I, I love Iowa. I love the people there, but the climate sucks. <laughs> There's just no doubt about it. <laughs> Our winters can be tough. And we are right now in what I would call a tough period, uh, but we're getting through it day by day. So as I did your introduction, I talked about that you served as ASHP president and you were ASHP president in the early 90s, 92 to 93. We know that women right now make up the majority of pharmacy graduates and the pharmacy workforce. And yet, you know, they're underrepresented in senior pharmacy leadership positions. So tell me more about your experience running for office back then. And then just a little bit of a snapshot of your overall career experiences with the Veterans Administration. Well, you know, I couldn't help but reflect on those days when I saw Kamala Harris being inaugurated as our first female vice president. And here, seeing the memes now going around on the internet, you know, about the glass ceiling being broken and, you know, be sure and put your shoes on. Because there was a lot of that similar talk way back then in the early 90s when I was running for ASHP president. It was a time, as you have pointed out, where we had very few ASHP women presidents, despite the fact that it was also at a time when, for the first time in history, there was probably an equal number of pharmacists who were women and men serving in the profession about the same time. And so there was a lot of kind of unfulfilled expectation about having another woman president of ASHP. There had been uh, Sister Gonzalez in the mid 70s. And then it was a full 10 years before that Marianne Ivey had really broken that glass ceiling of contemporary women becoming presidents of ASHP. So everybody felt it was time. I ran against Bob Williams the first time and lost. And so by the time I ran a second time, there was really a lot of talk about, wow, will a woman ever become president of ASHP? Much like we're talking about presidential office too in the United States. But I did win the second election and became the, the first in a long line of wonderful pharmacy leaders that became president of ASHP after that. But you know, I had a lot of firsts in my career when you think about it. I was the first woman pharmacist on the Board of Pharmacy in Nevada, for example. And in the VA system, I was the first of anybody really who had a, a formal scope of practice back in 1981. So I guess that that running for, for, for office back then just struck me as one in a line of many firsts that I was had the opportunity for in my career. You know, I, I so appreciate that you shared that because that's been a thread on several of our Melissa Rx Scripts podcast about being the first or the only and kind of blazing a trail and what that looks like. And, you know, I need to just reflect for a minute. I think back to when I met you and it was early in my career. I had completed the APHA uh, executive residency and I was in the DC area 
working on the scope of pharmacy practice project. And I spent quite a bit of time up at ASHP in Bethesda. And I remember you were there for a presidential, I don't know if it was a board meeting or you had, you had meetings in the building. And um, we spent some time together. And I just thought to myself, wow, like I was impressed with your leadership. And I knew how significant it was, as you described, you know, that you had been elected, but there had been a little bit of a pause. And I think it's helpful for us to share that with our listeners, because now there's been so many women that have been elected to office at ASHP, and that continues to be positive. That's happening in other national organizations, APHA, ACCP, et cetera. But I think reflecting on the time when it didn't, and how can we encourage others? And I think you sharing your story about that you were the first, I think that helps for our listeners men and women who are thinking about doing something that's different and innovative and, you know, they want to step up and they think, should I do it? So I think our takeaway is yes, go for it. Right. Well, and also I think I found myself realizing that I was a role model for other women early on in my career. And so it became important for me to serve that function as well, because I didn't have a lot of female role models growing up. Like I said, from the very beginning, what I could do in life, you know, who I saw doing it was perhaps a little different than this generation of women, which I think is fabulous. Yeah, I think that's so, so important. Well, you know, I noted in your introduction that you received the 2013 Harvey A.K. Whitney Lecture Award for Outstanding Contributions in Health System Pharmacy. And I know your journey, and we've touched on this, included work with many of health system pharmacy icons, many icons in pharmacy. So tell me more about Dr. Joseph A. Otis, ASHP CEO Emeritus. Yeah, I think no discussion of pharmacy in general would be complete without a discussion of Dr. Otis. He, of course, was the CEO of ASHP for 37 years and it built ASHP into what it is today. And I think many younger pharmacists may not be aware of that, but he started um, and basically the organization was part of APHA back until about 1960 or so. And you know, had basically no budget, no staff, no savings. And he built the organization into, when I was president, it was about 32,000 members and a staff of 180 with a $30 million budget and lots of reserves. And of course, it's much larger now. I had the honor of uh, actually purchasing, when I was president, the headquarters building on Wisconsin Avenue, which of course has, has now been- Oh, wow. Yeah. And we, I think, celebrated the foundation's 25th anniversary that year. So there was a lot of parties that went on when I was president that year. But I had the privilege of working with Dr. Otis, you know, all the time I was on councils and working my way up to being president, which is basically three or four years on the board of directors and so on. And he was such an engaging conversationalist. Um, and had this wonderful balance, you know, with all these new presidents that would come in every year of trying to maintain some continuity of this organization that was growing very quickly, but such a, a tremendous rock to the profession versus the sort of renewal and these new ideas that all these new presidents would bring in every year. He had this wonderful ability to listen and could be very persuasive and persistent when he finally did speak, but he often listened very closely for a long time before he did. And Melissa, you and I were talking about the sort of after five club that he had, and he had a habit of working well into the evening. He sometimes would work until 10 or 11 o'clock, but at 5 p.m., anybody in the organization, anybody who was in town, a past president, a past board member, a, just an, a pharmacist that he knew was welcome to come in if Joe was in town and sit in his office and have a scotch. 
And he, I think was, he enjoyed that so much because he really did enjoy being around people. But I think there was a certain good that he created out of that, not just the goodwill that he created among people and the, the welcomeness that you felt when you engaged with him, but he got a tremendous amount of information out of that. You know, his staff would come in and have a scotch with him and discuss the troubles of the day. And he learned a great deal about what was going on within ASHP and within the profession by doing that. One of the things that I learned, I think, from those interactions was the amount of information that one can get, the exchange of information that one can get just on a social basis. And Joe was a master at that. He really was able to create an environment for talented people by hiring some of the best folks. And then he basically got out of their way and let them do their job. And uh, that was one of the things that I adopted from Joe very early on was to not micromanage people. Uh, but a tremendous leader. And by the time I really got to know Joe, he, of course, had accomplished so much in his life. And I just want to say a little something about mentorship, because as I thought about Joe as a mentor, uh, you know, mentors aren't often just teachers. They, they really don't teach you sometimes. Sometimes they just empower you somehow by allowing you to be you, by creating a space for you to, to work in or just inviting you to the table. And I think Joe was that kind of person to so many people. He had so many contacts and he really was very empowering to people just by his presence and creating that atmosphere to actually work in. I just love that, Jan. You shared so many reflections and I feel the gratitude that I can tell you have in your heart too for having known and worked with Dr. Otis. I worked with him on the Scope of Pharmacy Practice Project, and then he was the first chairman of the PTCB Board of Governors. So again, you know, I feel fortunate that he was there in our early days and, you know, during corporation startup, and there were a lot of politics that we had to navigate. And so just knowing his diplomacy was something I really learned from and, and watched. And I also feel fortunate I was able to um, be up in at ASHP headquarters in Bethesda and attend several of those and, you know, just be a part of those after five discussions and his inclusive nature. It was just, you know, I mean, we're talking a lot about it in today's world, but it was just the fiber of what Dr. Otis was all about. And he wanted to hear really from everyone. And like you said, and pick it up. And, you know, another big takeaway that I had that you touched on is the importance of social gatherings and these dinners. And, you know, we continued with those throughout the whole time that I was at PTCB of our Board of Governors dinners and how much work you can get done by building relationships and camaraderie and collaboration and talking about issues, but you're doing it over in a social setting versus just around the board table. And we were much more efficient and productive around the board table as we got to know each other. And that's something that I really learned from him um, over the years. So I appreciate, you know, your reflections and also, you know, he was just such an important mentor to so, so, so many of us. I think one of the things one of the things you can't underestimate about Dr. Otis was sort of his goodness. And when you have when you hear people talk about him, he had such integrity. You know, he had great manners and sensitivity, but it kind of boiled down to this humanism. I mean, he never I never sensed any gender gap in his understanding of people. He was often described as being very wise. And I think a lot of that came from his very spiritual nature. He was you know, an Italian Catholic, and he modeled and mentored that in his life as well. Yeah, I think you're right about, for sure, the integrity and the trust, and he built that throughout the organization, and, you know, that was kind of a core value. So, yes, for sure. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. 
you know, I talked about how you and I first met years ago, but then we reconnected in the last couple of years through University of Iowa, through the Executive Leadership Board, and then through the Zeta Cooper Leadership Symposium. And, you know, I was really happy to invite you and have you come back to serve as a keynote speaker for our Zeta Cooper Leadership Symposium a couple of years ago. And I remember your keynote presentation, you know, you always provide engaging research and content. And, you know, I like that you're a lifelong learner and you're always digging in. So I remember one of the things you talked about was leadership styles and specifically gender specific leadership impact. So can you tell us more about the research and, you know, how does that really work in the real world? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I've worked with both men and women in leadership positions uh, during my career, and I can't help but admonish people to know that you will work with both men and women bosses. Early in my career, I realized I had no women bosses. I was always reporting to a a man. But later, uh, as I developed a, a team of my own and worked with an executive leadership team, I looked around one day and realized that I was working with all women. And I I loved working with these women. They were so talented and and just excellent leaders and had these effective leadership styles. And so I started looking at really, you know, what is the most effective leadership style? And is there a difference between men and women? And so the literature does yield some information about that. And of course you have to learn about what bad leadership style looks like first, but turns out the most effective leadership style is called transformational leadership. And I talked about Dr. Otis being somebody who just hired talented people and then sort of got out of their way. And micromanagement is really bad for leadership style. But great leaders also sort of stimulate subordinates to move beyond their own sort of self-interest and work toward interests of the whole group. And there are a variety of kind of styles, I think, that people talk about when they talk about transformational leadership. In fact, there's four of them. One is to be very charismatic to their followers when they serve as their role models. They kind of instill this pride that if I'm just associated with this person, you know, I'm, I, that's really good. The other one is intellectually stimulate employees. They encourage creative problem solving and apply innovative techniques. Another is they persuade employees to believe in the mission and attainability of the organization itself. They're inspirational and enthusiastic when they talk about the future. A fourth one is that they meet the emotional needs of their employees. They're very individualistic. They spend a lot of time developing, teaching, and coaching. And it's interesting, if you really read the literature, women are better at three out of four of these type of leadership skills than men are. The one that men are most effective at is the charismatic, the first one. But women are actually a little bit better at some of the other areas in which transformational leadership really shines. That empathy, that ability to coach, that persuasiveness that we spend a lot of time on developing as women turn out to be very powerful leadership skills. I think this is probably the biggest thing that I've had the opportunity to really really delve into is the opportunity to be better transformational leaders. I love that. And I think the examples you gave line up so much with what we've seen in the past year during the pandemic. And that, you know, sometimes when things needed to be shored up or looked at when new things were happening or innovation or, you know, this theme of empathy and relationships and interconnectedness, I think came up again and again. So, you know, those examples you gave were really important. And I also think just recognizing that there are different styles out there and, you know, what works for 
for one gender might not be as strong for another. So those, those were really helpful, really, really interesting. Well, you know, I know I remember during your talk, you also talked about in, in your overview of leadership, strength-based leadership. So how would you see this work? How does strength-based leadership work for teams? And, you know, we've had so much change in the way work is being done in the past year or so. How does this make a difference when groups are connected virtually? You know, I'm a huge fan of strength-based leadership understanding. I guess as you grow older, you start looking at yourself a little bit more and want to do some self-help stuff, which I've always done, I guess, in my career. But when I found out about the strength-based leadership, which really hasn't been that long ago, I was just fascinated by the idea that we all have these sort of innate and natural ways of looking and feeling and acting about things. And if we try to be somebody else, we really don't do a very good job. So while we may role model other leaders in our lives, the investment and time we spend in training and developing our own skills and our own natural talents really develop into our own strengths. And so it's a really important, I think, for everybody to understand what their strengths are. You can do that in a variety of ways, but I think one of the best ways is probably to order a, you know, a strength finder by Tom Rath, which you can get you know, on the internet and take a test, which will give you your top five strengths. And once you understand yourself, and, and I was amazed at when I took this little test and read like what my strengths were, it was sort of right on. And I was able to bring those strengths then to the table of the meetings I attended, to the teams that I created. And I also had a better understanding of what I wasn't strong at. And so the message of this story is that most of America, you know, our kids come home with an F on their report card, and we want to immediately remediate that, right? But the real idea is to understand what you're good at and bring those things to the table, invest time and energy in developing what you're good at, and let somebody else do the things that you're not so good at. And that's how you create powerful teams. I think that when you're working on teams through the internet or whether you're doing Zoom meetings or whatever, the more the background of understanding you have about the strengths that your teammates have, the more effective you can be in taking on problems. People can work uh, at their own pace in their own environment, but knowing who to call upon in order to do the right thing at the right time is really the talent, to put together those powerful teams where everybody maximizes their talents. Yeah, because there's nothing more frustrating when you're working on a project when someone has something that's either they've been tasked with it, it's not their strength or it's out of their skill zone and it's just frustrating. And, you know, you feel like you're not moving forward, but I like the idea. I've done the strength finders assessment before too. And I think you learn so much. And my sense too, is that you learn not only in work, but it kind of helps guide like why certain hobbies resonate with you or, you know, when you're out in the world and travel, like why you get that kind of flow feeling. Wouldn't you say that, that it kind of applies to everything? Well, and I've used it very effectively for resident education. I always had residents do their strengths at the early on in the, in the year so that I could determine what they're really good at. And it helped me in so many ways. I had a resident, for example, one time who had a big input strength. And boy, was she a great drug information researcher. She wanted to know what was the world's literature on any given question. And I'd give her a project and she'd spend three weeks collecting information about the project and come to me. And sure enough, she knew everything there was to know about this project, but had a hard time getting off the mark and actually completing the project. 
And so knowing that her strength was input and this is where she wanted to focus, I could, you know, sort of move her along in the task and point out to her that now it was time to move on to other aspects of the project. Or she needed to get other team members to help her with those aspects if she wasn't good at that. I had another resident whose biggest strength was woo which is kind of a cheerleader type. And she never, she never really wanted to do the project. She just wanted to go convince the physicians that we had the project and we were going to do it and, you know, the, and really rabble rouse them to be you know, interested in, and concerned about the project. But she wasn't really interested in actually doing the project. That's interesting to have you know, both of those on the team, but you do see that they, they each play an important role because if people don't care about it, you know, if the interest or enthusiasm or the purpose of the why isn't there. And then, you know, your input person having the depth of the research behind it. That's interesting. My biggest strength is I'm strategic. And while that sounds kind of sexy, all that means is that I can peek my head above the crowd a little bit and see patterns where other people just see confusion. So I used to sit in meetings and, and say things like, gee, I think we ought to hire a psychiatric pharmacist. And people would look at me like I had three heads. But then after they started seeing what I saw three or four months down the road, they would say the same thing. And so it took me a long time to develop a keen understanding of what it was I saw, why I saw it, and that other people didn't yet. And so I had to be sort of patient sometimes with people's understanding of what was happening in the world. But I also had to learn how to trust that what I saw was actually happening. Yeah, I think that's a really good one to trust. That voice or that insight is important. Um, the timing of how and when you share it, you know, you probably learned a lot through that too of what makes the most sense of how you bring other people along so that then they they get it and they're not like, I don't know what she's talking about. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. I, well, thank you. We'll link to something related to Strength Finders in the show notes. Well, you know, you and I have connected and talked about this past year, this period during the pandemic. And you know, these have been so challenging times for so many people with staying home and meetings being canceled, racial injustice, um, schools been impacted, businesses have been impacted, but there's also been positive times. And, you know, you and I have been on meetings and some of those positive times or silver linings have been shared for connection or trying things or doing new things. So tell me a little bit about how you've been spending your time. What's interesting, my consulting business has really changed because of the COVID um, pandemic. You know, I had 10 or so meetings that were canceled early in 2020. End up just like everyone else, sort of converting my business over to Zoom meetings and those kinds of things. But without the business travel, it really allowed me a lot more time to do things that um, I hadn't really thought about doing. And one of the things that I had the opportunity to do was improve my golf game, which has been a tremendous mental health attribute for this whole time. But also I've had the ability and the time to teach my grandson and help do some homeschooling for my one of my two daughters who lives in the area. I've had an opportunity to develop a whole new relationship with my grandson and my granddaughter, which I never would have had the opportunity to do had it not been for the fact that I was needed. And so it kind of come full circle in the whole circle of life in that I'm now enjoying my grandchildren in, in some ways, in ways that I didn't ever have the time to enjoy my children. Oh, I love that. You know, and I, I, I do think some of those connections, I mean, it's been very hard for families to be separated or to not be able to see each other or have holidays together. But also there have been ideas and that, you know, you've been able to spend so much time with your granddaughter and your grandson it was really beautiful. I appreciate the insights about your golf game. And I think 
you know, all of us looking about how can we still be outdoors or, you know, do things. And I think I've shared with you that I'm, I'm really into doing bar three. That's been kind of my thing in the last couple of years. And, you know, the studio was closed for a period of time. And then I've continued to work out at home doing live stream. And it's one of those things where, you know, I, I guess you could have decided, all right, I'm not doing this or I'm going to switch tracks or whatever. But I'm proud to tell you that this week, actually tomorrow, is going to be my 250th class. So I have really continued sticking with it, even in a different environment during a pandemic, doing it live stream with it with my teacher, the studio and, and friends and stuff like that. And there's several of us that have been part of the live stream community. So I think like you described, you just kind of figure it out and make it work. And there's a lot of things that are different, but they're still fun. Well, and Melissa, congratulations on that. That's a fabulous accomplishment and so important for your mental health. Yes. Yes. And you know, what's funny is in the studio, there's certain spots where people, I mean, I would, I was usually in the back towards the window looking out because I like to see the light and it, it makes me smile to see like who's kind of in that spot or what that looks like and, and people and everything. But I, I do think having the interactions or that I'm taking the classes live has been good, but you're right from the, the standpoint of still saying engaged. And, you know, we've talked about that with other guests on the podcast of the importance of taking care, not of just your physical self, but also your mental health. Really, really important today and, and in the future. Well, you know, our time together is winding down. And Jan, I think you and I could continue for quite some time. What I typically do at the close is I ask a question. And the question is, while I have you, is there one prescription or life lesson you'd like to share with others or comment on in the spirit of Melissa Rx scripts? You know, I think I'd like to talk about forgiveness. There are so many people today that seem so angry. You know, pharmacists especially are very overwhelmed by their jobs. Some people don't even have a job. The demands of this pandemic on family and finances and fitness and the politics that's going on today. For so many people, I think searching for some sort of peace or purpose is the most debilitating source of pain. It has to be the struggle to forgive. There was a time when I believed that the act of forgiveness meant accepting the offender and by doing so condoning the act. I didn't understand that the true purpose of forgiveness is to stop allowing whatever that person did or said or how it made me feel to affect how I live now. And I borrow a quote from Oprah Winfrey on this. She actually loves this quote so much that she says it's her mantra. And that is the definition of forgiveness is giving up the hope that the past could be any different. You can accept or reject the way you're treated by other people, but until you really heal those wounds of the past, they continue to affect you. And you know, it's almost like you're bleeding all the time when they come up. And you can band-aid that bleeding with food or alcohol or drugs or work or cigarettes or sex, but eventually it sort of still continues to stain your life. So until you can find the strength to open that wound and you know, stick your hand in there and pull out the core of that pain and really look at it. And I think women especially are particularly bad at letting others really, the memories of the past, something someone said sort of ruminate in our brain long past the point where that person even remembers what they said to you. So I think this really speaks very clearly to me, and I think it probably speaks to other people that you know, pushing against this need to even forgive that person really is just like a poison. It just continues to affect the way you are. And until you surrender to those, those hurt, those loss, that resentment, that disappointment, and really accept the truth that something did happen, 
and now it's done. You know, you need to make a decision, I think, to put the pain as it rises up within you and kind of just to actually allow it to pass right through you. Give yourself permission to let go of the past and step out of your history into what is now and not let those past hurts and disappointment continue to affect the way you, you live now. Forgive and set yourself free. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you. Thank you for talking about forgiveness. I think it's so important and it's such an important thread as we look at 2021 and moving forward because there's been so many hard things and people are carrying those hard things. And I think what you're saying is you can set some things down and, and work through it and, and continue to move forward. Not only can you, but it's critical that you do. Yes, critical that you do. Thank you, Jan. Well, Jan, thank you for sharing your insights with me today. And this is the Melissa Arcs Group Podcast. And to everyone listening, please subscribe to our show and follow me, Melissa Muir Corrigan, on social media. I want to say a special thank you to my producer, Kate Cruz, with Executive Podcast Solutions, who makes the magic happen. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Melissa. I have really enjoyed this experience and love your podcast. Everybody listen to them. <laughs>